Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 18. Seraphin Ethionema White was nothing whatsoever like her name, except that she had as kind a heart and as good a soul as any amongst the hosts in heaven. She did not have wings, as did the angels after which she had been named. And she couldn't sing as sweetly as a seraphim either, for she had been blessed with a throaty voice and far too much humility to be a performer. Atheonema were delicate flowers, either pale or rose pink, and while this girl, just sixteen, was beautiful by any standard, she was not a delicate soul, but a strong one, not likely to be shaken apart in even the highest wind. Those who had just met her, and those who were overly charmed by eccentricity, called her seraphim, her name complete. Her teachers, neighbors, and casual acquaintances called her Sarah. Those who knew her best and loved her most deeply, like her sister, Celestina, called her Femi. From the moment the girl was admitted on the evening of January 5th, the nurses at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco called her Femi, too. Not because they knew her well enough to love her, but because that was the name they had heard Celestina use. Femi shared room 724 with the 86-year-old woman, Nella Lombardi, who had been deep in a stroke-induced coma for eight days and who had been recently moved out of the ICU when her condition stabilized. Her white hair was radiant, but the face that it framed was as gray as pumice, her skin utterly without luster. Miss Lombardi had no visitors. She was alone in the world, her two children and her husband having passed away long ago. During the following day, January 6th, as Femi was wheeled around the hospital for tests in various departments, Celestina remained at 724, working on her portfolio for a class in advanced portraiture. She was a junior at the Academy of Art College. She had put aside a half-finished pencil portrait of Femi to develop several of Nella Lombardi. In spite of the ravages of illness and age, beauty remained in the old woman's face. Her bone structure was superb. In youth, she must have been stunning. Celestina intended to capture Nella as she was now head at rest upon the pillow of, perhaps, her deathbed, eyes closed and mouth slack, face ashen but serene. Then she would draw four more portraits, using bone structure and other physiological evidence to imagine how the woman looked to 60, 40, 20, and 10. Ordinarily, when Celestina was troubled, her art was a perfect sanctuary from all woes. When she was planning, composing, and rendering, time had no meaning for her, and life had no sting. On this momentous day, however, drawing provided no solace. Frequently, her hands shook, and she could not control the pencil. During those spells when she was too shaky to draw, 
She stood at the window, gazing at the storied city. The singular beauty of San Francisco and the exquisite patina of its colorful history spoke to her heart, and kindled in her such an unreasonable passion that she sometimes wondered, at least half seriously, if she had spent other lives there. Often, streets were wondrously familiar to her the first time she set foot on them. Certain great houses, dating from the late 1800s and early 1900s, inspired her to imagine elegant parties thrown there in more gentle and gilded ages, and her flights of imagination sometimes acquired such vivid detail that they were eerily like memories. This time, even San Francisco, under a Chinese blue sky stippled with a cloisonne of silver and gold clouds, couldn't provide solace or calm to Celestina's nerves. Her sister's dilemma wasn't as easily put out of mind as any problem of her own might have been, and she herself had never been in such an awful situation as Femi was now. Nine months ago, Femi had been raped. Ashamed and scared, she told no one. Although a victim, she blamed herself, and the prospect of being exposed to ridicule so horrified her that despair got the better of good judgment. When she discovered she was pregnant, Femi dealt with this new trauma as other naive 15-year-olds have done before her. She sought to avoid the scorn and the reproach that she imagined would be heaped upon her for having failed to reveal the rape at the time that it occurred. With no serious thought to long-term consequences, focused solely on the looming moment, in a state of denial, she made plans to conceal her condition as long as possible. In her campaign to keep her weight gain to a minimum, anorexia was her ally. She learned to find pleasure in hunger pains. When she did eat, she touched only nutritious food, a more well-balanced diet than at any time in her life. Even if she desperately avoided contemplation of the childbirth that inevitably approached, she was trying her best to ensure the health of the baby while still remaining slim enough to avoid suspicion. Through nine months of quiet panic, however, Femi grew less rational week by week, resorting to reckless measures that endangered her own health and the baby's even as she avoided junk food and took a daily multivitamin. To conceal the changes in her physique, she wore loose clothes and wrapped her abdomen with ace bandages. Later, she used girdles to achieve more dramatic compression. Because she had suffered a leg injury six weeks before being raped and had undergone subsequent tendon surgery, Femi was able to claim lingering symptoms, avoiding gym class, and the discovery of her condition since the start of school in September. By the last week of pregnancy, the average woman has gained 28 pounds. Typically, 7 to 8 pounds of this is the fetus. The placenta and amniotic fluid weigh 3 pounds. The remaining 18 are due to water retention and fat stores. Femi gained less than 12 pounds. Her pregnancy might have gone undetected even without the girdle. The day previous to her admission to St. Mary's, she awakened with an unremitting headache, nausea, and dizziness. Fierce abdominal pain afflicted her too, like nothing she had known before, though not the telltale contractions of labor. Worse, she was plagued with frightening eye problems. At first, mere blurring, followed by phantom fireflies flickering at the periphery of her vision. Then a sudden, half-minute blindness that left her in a state of terror, even though it passed quickly. In spite of this crisis, and though she was aware that she was within a week or ten days of delivery, Femi still could not find the courage to tell her father and mother. Reverend Harrison White, their dad, was a good Baptist and a good man, neither judgmental nor hard of heart. Their mother, Grace, was in every way suited to her name. 
Femi was loath to reveal her pregnancy, not because she feared her parents' wrath, but because she dreaded seeing disappointment in their eyes, and because she would have rather have died than bring shame upon them. When a second and longer spell of blindness struck her that same day, she was home alone. She crawled from her bedroom, along the hall, and felt her way to the phone in her parents' bedroom. Celestina was in her tiny studio apartment, working happily on a cubistic self-portrait when her sister called. Judging by Feeney's hysteria and initial incoherence, Celestina thought their mom or dad, or both, had died. Her heart was broken almost as completely by the actual facts as it would have been if she had, indeed, lost a parent. The thought of her precious sister being violated made her half-sick with sorrow and rage. Horrified by the girl's nine months of self-imposed emotional isolation and by her physical suffering, Celestina was eager to reach her mother and father. When the whites stood together as a family, their shine could hold back the darkest night. Although Femi regained her sight while talking to her big sister, she didn't recover her reason. She begged Celestina not to track down mom or dad long distance, not to call the doctor, but to come home and be with her when she divulged her terrible secret. Against her better judgment, Celestina made the promise Femi wanted. She trusted the instincts of the heart as much as logic and the tearful entreaty of a beloved sister was a powerful restraint on common sense. She didn't take time to pack. Miraculously, an hour later, she was on a plane to Spruce Hills, Oregon, by way of Eugene. Three hours after receiving the call, she was at her sister's side. In the living room of the parsonage, under the gaze of Jesus and John F. Kennedy, whose portraits hung side by side, the girl revealed to their mom and dad what had been done to her, and also what, in her despair and confusion, she had done to herself. Femi received the all-enfolding, unconditional love that she had needed for nine months, that pure love which she had foolishly believed herself undeserving. Although the embrace of family and the relief of revelation had a bracing effect, bringing her more to her proper sense than she had been in a long time, Femi refused to reveal the identity of the man who had raped her. He had threatened to kill her and her folks if she bore witness against him, and she believed his threat was sincere. Child, the reverend said, he will never touch you again. Both the Lord and I will make sure of that. And though neither the Lord nor I will resort to a gun, we have the police for guns. The rapist has so terrorized the girl, so indelibly printed his threat in her mind that she will not be reasoned into making this one last disclosure. With gentle persistence, her mother appealed to her sense of moral responsibility. If this man was not arrested, tried, and convicted, he would sooner or later assault another innocent girl. Feeney wouldn't budge. He's crazy. Sick. He's evil, she shuddered. He'll do it. He'll kill us all, and he won't care if he dies in a shootout with the police or if he gets sent to the electric chair. None of you will be safe if I tell. The consensus amongst Celestina and her parents was that Feeney would be convinced in this matter after the child had been born. She was too fragile and too ridden by anxiety to do the right thing just yet, and there was no point in pressing her at this time. Abortion was illegal, and their folks would have been reluctant as a matter of faith to consider it, even under worse circumstances. Besides, with Femi so close to term, and considering the injuries she might have sustained from prolonged hunger and from the diligent application of the girdle, abortion might be a dangerous option. She would have to get medical attention immediately, the child would be put up for adoption with people who would be able to love it and who would not forever see in it the image of its hateful father. 
I won't have the baby here, Femi insisted. If he realized he made a baby with me, it'll make him crazier. I know it will. She wanted to go to San Francisco with Celestina to have the baby in the city where the father and not incidentally her friends and Reverend White's parishioners would never know she'd given birth. The more her parents and sister argued against this plan, the more agitated Femi became until they worried that they would jeopardize her health and mental stability if they didn't do as she wished. The symptoms that terrified Femi, the headaches, crippling abdominal pain, dizziness, vision problems, had entirely relented. Possibly they had been more psychological than physical in nature. A delay of a few hours before getting her under a physician's care might still be risky, but so is forcing her into a local hospital to endure the mortification she desperately wanted to avoid. By invoking the word emergency, Celestina was able quickly to reach her own physician in San Francisco. He agreed to treat Femi and to have her admitted to St. Mary's upon her arrival from Oregon. The Reverend couldn't easily escape church obligations on such short notice, but Grace wanted to be with her daughters. Femi, however, pleaded that only Celestina accompany her. Although the girl was unable to articulate why she preferred not to have her mother at her side, they all understood the tumult in her heart. She couldn't bear to subject her gentle and proper mother to the shame and embarrassment that she herself felt so keenly and that she imagined would grow intolerably worse in the hours or days ahead until and even after the birth. Grace, of course, was a strong woman for whom faith was an armor against far worse than embarrassment. Celestina knew that mom would suffer immeasurably more heartache by remaining in Oregon than what pain she might experience at her daughter's side. But Femi was too young, too naive, and too frightened to grasp that in this matter, as in all others, her mother was a pillar, not a reed. The tenderness with which Grace acceded to Femi's desire at the expense of her own peace of mind filled Celestina with emotion. She'd always admired and loved her mother to an extent that no words or work of art could adequately describe, but never more than now. With the same surprising ease that she had gotten a plane out of San Francisco on a one-hour notice, Celestina booked two return seats on an early evening flight from Oregon, as though she had a supernatural travel agent. Airborne, Femi complained of ringing in her ears, which might have been related to the flight. She also suffered an episode of double vision, and, in the airport after landing, a nosebleed, which appeared to be related to her previous symptoms. The sight of her sister's blood and the persistence of the flow made Celestina weak with apprehension. She was afraid she had done the wrong thing by delaying hospitalization. Then, from San Francisco International, through the fog-shrouded streets of the Night City, to St. Mary's, to room 724, and to the discovery that Femi's blood pressure was so high, 210 over 126, that she was in a hypertensive crisis at risk of a stroke, renal failure, and other life-threatening complications. Antihypertensive drugs were administered intravenously, and Femi was confined to bed, attached to a heart monitor. Dr. Leland Danes, Celestina's internist, arrived directly from dinner at the Ritz-Carlton. Although Danes had receding white hair and a seamed face, time had been kind enough to make him look not so much old as dignified. Long in practice, he was nevertheless free of arrogance, soft-spoken with a bottomless supply of patience. After examining Femi, who was nauseous, Danes prescribed an anticonvulsant, an anemetic, and a sedative, all intravenously. The sedative was mild, but Femi was asleep in mere minutes. 
She was exhausted by her long ordeal and by her recent lack of sleep. Dr. Dane spoke with Celestina in the corridor, outside the door to 724. Some of the passing nurses were nuns in wimples and full-length habits, drifting like spirits along the hallway. She's got preeclampsia. It's a condition that occurs in about 5% of pregnancies, virtually always after the 24th week, and usually it can be treated successfully. But I'm not going to sugarcoat this, Celestina. In her case, it's more serious. She hasn't been seeing a doctor, no prenatal care, and here she is in the middle of her 38th week, about 10 days from delivery. Because they knew the date of the rape, and because that attack had been Feeney's sole sexual experience, the day of impregnation could be fixed. Delivery calculator with more precision than usual. As she comes closer to full term, said Danes, she's a great risk of preeclampsia developing into full eclampsia. What could happen then, Celestina asked, dreading the answer. Possible complications include cerebral hemorrhage, pulmonary edema, kidney failure, necrosis of the liver, coma, to name a few. I should have gotten her into the hospital back home. He placed a hand on her shoulder. Don't beat up on yourself. She's come this far, and though I don't know the hospital in Oregon, I doubt the level of care will equal what she'll receive here. Now that efforts were being made to control the preeclampsia, Dr. Dane has scheduled a series of tests for the following day. He expected to recommend a cesarean section as soon as Feeney's blood pressure was reduced and stabilized, but he didn't want to risk this surgery before determining what complications might have resulted from her restricted diet and the compression of her abdomen. Although she already knew that the answer could not be cheerily optimistic, Celestina wondered, is the baby likely to be normal? I hope it will, the physician said, but his emphasis was too solidly on the word hope. In room 724, standing alone at her sister's bedside, watching the girl sleep, Celestina told herself that she was coping well. She could handle this unnerving development without calling in either of her parents. Then her breath caught repeatedly in her breast as her throat tightened against the influx of air. One particularly difficult inhalation dissolved into a sob, and she wept. She was four years older than Femi. They hadn't seen a great deal of each other in the last three years, since Celestina had come to San Francisco. Although distance and time, the press of her studies, and the busyness of daily life had not made her forget that she loved Femi, she had forgotten the purity and power of that love. Rediscovering it now, she was shaking so badly that she had to pull a chair to the side of the bed and sit down. She hung her head, covered her face with her chilled hands, and wondered how her mother could sustain faith in God when such terrible things could happen to someone as innocent as Femi. Near midnight, she returned to her apartment, lights out, in bed, staring at the ceiling. She was unable to sleep. The blinds were raised, the windows bare. Usually, she liked the smoky, reddish-gold glow of the city at night. But this once, it made her uneasy. She was overcome by the odd notion that as she rose from the bed and went to the nearest window, she would discover the buildings of the metropolis dark. Every street lamp extinguished. This eerie light would be rising instead from drainage grates in the streets and out of open manholes. Not from the city, but from another world below. The inner eye of the artist, which she could never close even when she slept, ceaselessly sought form and design and meaning, and it did it in the ceiling above the bed. In the play of light and shadow across the hand trower plaster, she saw the solemn faces of the babies, deformed, peering beseechingly, and images of death. 
19 hours following Feeney's admission to St. Mary's, while the girl was undergoing the final test ordered by Dr. Danes, the beetle sky grew sullen in the early twilight, and the city once more arrayed itself in the red gesso and gold leaf that had indirectly illuminated Celestina's apartment ceiling the previous night. After a day of work, the pencil portrait of Nella Lombardi was finished. The second piece in the series, an extrapolation of her appearance at age 60, was begun. Although Celestina had not slept in almost 36 hours, she was clear-headed with anxiety. At the moment, her hands weren't shaking. Lines and shading flowed smoothly from her pencil, as words might stream from the pen of a medium in a trance. As she sat in the chair by the window, near Nella's bed, drawing on an angled lapboard, she conducted a quiet, one-sided conversation with the comatose woman. She recounted stories about growing up with Femi, and was amazed by what a trope she had. Sometimes Nella seemed to be listening, although her eyes never opened and though she never moved. The silently bouncing green light of the electrocardiograph maintained a steady pattern. Shortly before dinner, an orderly and a nurse wheeled Femi into the room. They carefully transferred her into bed. The girl looked better than Celestina expected. Though tired, she was quick to smile, and her huge brown eyes were clear. Femi wanted to see the finished portrait of Nella, and the one of herself that was half complete. You'll be famous one day, Celie. No one is famous in the next world, nor glamorous, nor titled, nor proud. She said, smiling, she quoted one of their father's most familiar sermons. Nor powerful, nor cruel, nor hateful, nor envious, nor mean, Femi recited. For these are all sicknesses of this fallen world. And now, when the offering plate passes amongst you, give as if you are already an enlightened citizen of the next life, and not a hypocritical, pitiful, penny-pitching, possessive, peck-sniff of this sorry world. They laughed and held hands. For the first time since Femi's panicked phone call from Oregon, Celestina felt that everything would eventually be alright again. Minutes later, once more in a corridor conference with Dr. Danes, she was forced to temper her new optimism. Femi's stubbornly high blood pressure, the presence of protein in her urine, and other symptoms indicated her preeclampsia wasn't a recent development. She was at increased risk of eclampsia. Her hypertension was gradually coming under control, but only by resort to more aggressive drug therapy than the physician preferred to use. In addition, Dane said, her pelvis is small, which would present problems of delivery even in an ordinary pregnancy and the muscle fibers in the central canal of her cervix, which ought to be softening in anticipation of labor, are still tough. I don't believe the cervix would dilate well enough to facilitate birth. The baby? There's no clear evidence of birth defects, but a couple tests reveal some worrisome anomalies. We'll know when we see the child. A stab of horror punctured Celestina as she failed to repress a mental image of a carnival-sized show monster, half-dragon and half-insect, coiled in her sister's womb. She hated the rapist child, but was appalled by her hatred, for the baby was blameless. If her blood pressure stabilized through the night, Dr. Danes continued, I want her to undergo a cesarean at 7 in the morning. The danger of eclampsia passed entirely after birth. I'd like to refer Femi to Dr. Aaron Kaltenbach. He's a superb obstetrician. Of course. In this case, I'll also be present during the procedure. I'm grateful for that, Dr. Danes, for all that you've done. Celestine was hardly more than a child herself, pretending to have the strong soldiers and the breadth of experience to bear this burden. 
She felt half crushed. Go home. Sleep, he said. You'll be of no help to your sister if you wind up a patient here yourself. Sure, man will feed me through dinner. The girl's appetite was sharp, even though the food was soft and bland. Soon she slept. At home, after phoning her folks, Celestina made a ham sandwich. She had a quarter of it, then two bites of a chocolate croissant, one spoonful of butter pecan ice cream. Everything was without taste, more bland than Femi's hospital food, and it cloyed in her throat. Fully clothed, she lay atop the bedspread. She intended to listen to a little classical music before brushing her teeth. She realized she hadn't turned on the radio. Before she could reach for the switch, she was asleep. 4.15 in the morning, January 7th. In Southern California, Agnes Lampion dreams of her newborn son. In Oregon, Junior Kane fearfully speaks a name in his sleep, and Detective Vanadium, waiting to tell the suspect about his dead wife's diary, leans forward in his chair to listen, while ceaselessly turning a quarter across the thick knuckles of his right hand. In San Francisco, a telephone rang. Rolling onto her side, fumbling in the dark, Celestina White snared the phone on the third ring. Her hello was also a yawn. Come now, said a woman with a frail voice. Still half asleep, Celestina asked. What? Come now. Come quickly. Who is this? Nella Lombardi. Come now. Your sister will soon be dying. Abruptly alert, sitting up on the edge of the bed, Celestina knew the caller could not be the comatose old woman. So she said angrily, Who the hell is this? The silence on the line was not merely that of a caller holding her tongue. It was abyssal and perfect, as no silence on a telephone ever can be, without the faintest hiss or crackle of static, no hint of breathing or of breath held. The depth of this soundless void chilled Celestina. She dared not speak again, because suddenly and superstitiously, she feared this silence as though it were a living thing capable of coming at her through the line. She hung up shot out of bed, snatched her leather jacket off one of the two chairs at the small kitchen table, grabbed her keys and purse, and ran. Outside, the sounds of the night town, the growl of a few car engines in the nearly deserted streets, the hard clank of a loose manhole cover shifting under tires, a distant siren, the laughter of drunken revelers winding their way home from an all-night party, were muffled by a shroud of silver fog. These were familiar noises, and yet to Celestina, the city was an alien place, as it had never seen before, full of menace, the buildings looming like great crypts or temples of unknown and fierce gods. The drunken laughter of the unseen partiers slithered eerily through the mist, not the sound of mirth, but of madness and torment. She didn't own a car, and the hospital was a 25-minute walk from her apartment. Praying that a taxi would cruise past, she ran, and although no cab appeared in answer to her prayer, Celestina reached St. Mary's, breathless, in little more than 15 minutes. The elevator creaked upward, infuriatingly slower than she remembered. Her hard-drawn breath was loud in this claustrophobic space. On the dark side of dawn, the seventh-floor corridors were quiet, deserted. The air was redolent of pine-scented disinfectant. The door to 724 stood open. Lights blazed. Both Femi and Nella were gone. A nurse's aide was almost finished changing the linens on the old woman's bed. Femi's bedclothes were in disarray. 
Where's my sister? Celestina gasped. The aide looked up from her work, startled. When a hand touched her shoulder, Celestina swiveled to face a nun with ruddy cheeks and twilight blue eyes that would now and forever be the color of bad news. I didn't know they had been able to reach you. They only started trying ten minutes ago. At least twenty minutes have passed since the call from Nella Lombardi. Where's Feeney? Quickly, the nun said, shepherding her along the hall to the elevators. What happened? As they dropped towards the surgical floor, the solemn sister said, Another hypertensive crisis. The poor girl's blood pressure soared in spite of the medication. She suffered a violent seizure, a clamped to convulsions. Oh, God. She's in surgery now. Cesarean section. Celestina expected to be taken to a waiting room, but instead the nun escorted her to surgical prep. I'm Sister Josephina. She slipped Celestina's purse off her shoulder. You can trust me with this, and helped her out of her jacket. A nurse in surgical greens appeared. Pull up the sleeves of your sweater. Scrub nearly to your elbows. Scrub hard. I'll tell you when to stop. As the nurse slapped a bar of lye soap in Celestina's right hand, Sister Josephina turned on the water in the sink. As luck would have it, the nun said, Dr. Lipscomb was in the hospital when it happened. He'd just delivered another baby under emergency conditions. He's excellent. How's Femi? Celestina asked, rubbing fiercely at her hands and forearms. Dr. Lipscomb delivered the baby like two minutes ago. The afterbirth hasn't even been removed yet, the nurse informed her. The baby is small but healthy. No deformity, Sister Josephina promised. Celestina's question had been about Femi, but they had told her about the baby, and she was alarmed by their evasion. Enough, said the nurse, and the nun reached through clouds of steam to crank off the water. Celestina turned away from the deep sink, raising her dripping hands as she had seen surgeons doing movies, and she could almost believe that she was still at home, in bed, in the fevered throes of a terrible dream. As the nurse slipped Celestina into a surgical gown and tied it behind her back, Sister Josephina knelt before her and tugged a pair of elastic trim cloth booties over her street shoes. This extraordinary and urgent invitation into the sanctum of surgery said more, and worse, about Femi's condition than all the words that these two women could have spoken. The nurse tied a surgical mask over Celestina's nose and mouth, fitted a cap over her hair. This way. From prep along a short hallway. Bright fluorescent panels overhead, booty squeaking on the vinyl tile floor. The nurse pushed open the swinging door, held it for Celestina, and did not follow her into surgery. Celestina's heart was knocking so hard that the reverberations of it in her bones, traveling down into her legs, seemed as though they would buckle her knees under her. Here, now, the surgical team, heads bent as if in prayer rather than in the practice of medicine, and dear Femi upon the operating table, and linen splattered with blood. Celestina told herself not to be alarmed by the blood. Birth was a bloody business. This was probably an ordinary scene in that regard. The baby was not in sight. In one corner, a heavy-set nurse was attending something at another table, her body blocking whatever occupied her attention. A bundle of white cloth, perhaps the infant. Celestina hated the baby with such ferocity that a bitter taste rose into the back of her mouth. Though not deformed, the child was a monster nonetheless. The rapist's curse. Healthy, but healthy at the expense of Femi. In spite of the intensity and urgency in which the surgical team was working on the girl, a tall nurse stepped aside and motioned Celestina to the head of the operating table. 
And finally, now to Femi. Femi alive, but oh, changed in a way that made Celestina feel as though her rib cage were closing like a clamp around her thudding heart. The right side of the girl's face appeared to be more strongly affected by gravity than the left. Slack, yet with a pulled look. The left eyelid drooped. That side of her mouth was turned down in half a frown. From the corners of her lips oozed a stream of drool. Her eyes rolled, wild with fear, and seemed not to be focused on anything in this room. Cerebral hemorrhage, explained the doctor who might have been Lipscomb. To remain standing, Celestina had to brace herself with one hand against the operating table. The lights had grown painfully bright, and the air had thickened with the odors of antiseptics and blood, until breathing required an effort. Femi turned her head. Her eyes stopped rolling wildly. She locked gaze with her sister, and for the first time, she seemed to know where she was. She tried to raise her right hand, but it flopped uselessly and would not respond, so she reached across her body with her left hand, which Celestina gripped tightly. The girl spoke, but her words were badly slurred, her speech incoherent. She twisted her sweat-drenched face in what might have been frustration, closed her eyes, and tried again, getting out a single but intelligible word. Baby. She's suffering only expressive aphasia, the doctor said. She can't get much out, but she understands you perfectly. With the infant in her arms, the heavyset nurse pressed him beside Celestina, who almost recoiled in disgust. She held the newborn so that its mother could look into its face. Femi gazed upon the child briefly, then sought her sister's eyes again. Another word, slurred but made intelligible with much effort. Angel. This was no angel, unless it was an angel of death. All right, yes, it had tiny hands and tiny feet, rather than hooked talons and cloven hooves. This was no demon child. Its father's evil was not visibly reflected in its small face. Nevertheless, Celestina wanted nothing to do with it, was offended by the very sight of it, and she couldn't understand why Femi was so insistently calling an angel. Angel. Femi said thickly, searching her sister's eyes for a sign of understanding. Don't, don't strain yourself, honey. Angel, Femi said urgently. And then, with an effort that made a blood vessel swell in her left temple, name. You want to name the baby Angel? The girl tried to say yes, but all the issue from her was yes, yes. So she nodded as vigorously as she was able to do and tightened her grip on Celestina's hand. Perhaps she was afflicted with only expressive aphasia, but she must be confused to some degree. The baby, which would be placed for adoption, was not hers to name. Angel, she repeated, close to desperation. Angel, a less exotic synonym for her own name. Seraphim's Angel, the angel of an angel. All right, Celestina said. Yes, of course. She could see no harm in humoring Femi. Angel. Angel White. Now, you calm down. You relax. Don't stress yourself. Angel. Yes. As the heavy-set nurse retreated with the baby, Femi's grip on her sister's hand relaxed, but then grew firm once more as her gaze also became more intense. Love you. I love you too, honey, Celestina said shakily. So much. Femi's eyes widened. Her hand tightened painfully on her sister's hand. Her entire body convulsed, thrashed, and she cried, Ugh! 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 
When her hand went limp in Celestina's, her body sagged too, and her eyes were no longer focused or rolling wildly. They shimmered in a stillness, darkled with death, as the cardiac monitor sang the long note to signify a flatline. Celestina was maneuvered aside as the surgical team began resuscitation procedures. Stunned, she backed away from the table until she encountered a wall. In Southern California, as dawn of this new momentous day looms nearer, Agnes Lampion still dreams of her newborn, Bartholomew, in an incubator, watched over by a host of little angels hovering on white wings, seraphim and cherubim. In Oregon, standing at Junior Kane's bedside, turning a quarter across the knuckles of his left hand, Thomas Vanadium asks about the name that his suspect has spoken in a grip of a nightmare. In San Francisco, Seraphim Ethionema White lies beyond all hope of resuscitation. So beautiful, and only 16. With a tenderness that surprises the moose Celestina, the tall nurse closes the dead girl's eyes. She opens a fresh, clean sheet and places it over the body, from the feet up, covering the precious face last of all. And now the stilled world starts turning again. Lowering his surgical mask, Dr. Lipscomb approached Celestina, where she stood with her back pressed to the wall. His homely face was long and narrow, as though pulled into that shape by the weight of his responsibilities. In other circumstances, however, his generous mouth might have shaped an appealing smile, and his green eyes hadn't in the compassion of someone who himself had known great loss. I'm so sorry, Miss White. She blinked, nodded, but could not speak. You'll need time to adjust to this, he said. Perhaps you, you got to call family? Her mother and father still resided in a world where Femi was alive. Bringing them from that old reality to this new one would be the second hardest thing Celestina had ever done. The hardest was being in this room at the very moment when Femi had moved on. Celestina knew that this was the worst thing she would have to endure in all of her life. Worse than her own death when it came. And... Of course, you'll need to make arrangements for the body, said Dr. Lipscomb. Sister Josephina will provide you with a room, a phone, privacy, whatever you need, and for however long you'll need it. She wasn't listening closely to him. Numb. She felt as though she was half anesthetized. She was looking past him, at nothing, and his voice seemed to be coming to her through several layers of surgical masks, though he now wore none at all. But before you leave St. Mary's, the physician said, I'd like a few minutes of your time. It's very important to me, personally. Gradually, she perceived that Lipskin was more troubled than he should have been, considering that his patient had died through no fault of his own. When she met his eyes again, he said, I'll wait for you, when you're ready to hear me, however long you need. But something, something extraordinary happened here before you arrived. Celestina almost begged off, almost told him she had no interest in whatever curiosity of medicine or physiology he might have witnessed. The only miracle that would have mattered, Femi's survival, had not been granted. In the face of his kindness, however, she couldn't refuse his request. She nodded. The newborn was no longer in the operating room. Celestina hadn't noticed the infant being taken away. She had wanted to see it once more, even though she was sickened by the sight of it. Evidently, her face was nodded with the effort to remember what the child had looked like, for the physician said, Yes? What's wrong? The baby. She's been taken to the neonatal unit. She. 
Heretofore, Celestina hadn't given a thought to the gender of the baby. Because of her, it had been less a person than a thing. Lipscomb said, Miss White, do you want me to show you the way? She shook her head. No, thank you, no. Neonatal unit. I'll find it later. This consequence to rape, the baby, was less baby to Celestina than cancer. A malignancy excised rather than a life delivered. She had been no more impelled to study the child than she would have been charmed to examine the glistening gnarls and oozing convulsions of a freshly plucked tumor. Consequently, she could remember nothing of a squinched face. One detail, and only one, haunted her. As shaken as she had been at Femi's side, she couldn't trust her memory. Perhaps she hadn't seen what she thought she had seen. One detail, one only. It was a crucial detail, however. One that she absolutely must confirm before she left St. Mary's. Even if she will be required to look at the child once more. This spawn of violence. This killer of her sister. Chapter 19 In hospitals, as in farmhouses, breakfast comes soon after dawn because both healing and growing are hard work and long days of labor are required to save the human species, which spends as much time earning its pain and hunger as it does trying to escape them. Two soft-boiled eggs, one slice of bread neither toasted nor buttered, a glass of apple juice, and a dish of orange jello were served to Agnes Lampion as, on farms farther inland from the coast, roosters still crowed and plump hens clucked contentedly atop their early layings. Although she had slept well and though her hemorrhaging had been successfully arrested, Agnes was too weak to manage breakfast alone. A simple spoon was as heavy and unwielding as a shovel. She didn't have an appetite anyway. Joy was too much on her mind. The safe birth of a healthy child was a blessing, but it wasn't compensation for her loss. Although by nature resistant to depression, she now had a darkness in her heart that would not relent before a thousand dawns or ten thousand. If a mere nurse had insisted that she eat, Agnes would not have been persuaded, but she couldn't hold out against the insistent importuning of one special seamstress. Maria Elena Gonzalez, such an imposing figure that in spite of her diminutive stature that even three names seemed insufficient to identify her, was still present. Although the crisis had passed, she wasn't ready to trust that doctors and nurses by themselves could provide Agnes with adequate care. Sitting on the edge of the bed, Maria lightly salted the runny eggs and spooned them into Agnes's mouth. Eggs is as chickens does. Eggs are as chickens do, Agnes corrected. Kay? Frowning, Agnes said, No, that doesn't make any sense either, does it? What were you trying to say, dear? This woman beat to ask me about chickens. What woman? Doesn't matter. Silly woman was making fun of my English, trying to confuse me. She beat to ask me whether chicken come around first or first be an egg. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? See, like that, she say. She wasn't making fun of your English, dear. It's just an old riddle. When Maria didn't understand that word, Agnes spelled and defined it. No one can answer it, good English or not. That's the point. Point B to ask question without can have no answer? What sense that makes? She frowned with concern. You not to be well yet, Miss Lampion. Your head not clean. Clear. I answer to riddle. And what was your answer? First chicken to be come with first egg inside already. Agnes swallowed a spoonful of jello and smiled. Well, that is pretty simple after all. 
everything be? Be what? Agnes asked as she sucked up the last of the apple juice through a straw. Simple. People make things to be complicated when not. All world simple like sewing. Sewing? Agnes wondered if, indeed, her head was not yet clean. Thread needle. Stitch, 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 Maria said earnestly as she removed Agnes's bed tray. Tie off last stitch. Simple. Only to decide is color of thread and what type stitch. Then stitch, stitch, stitch. Into all this talk of stitchery came a nurse with the news that baby Lampion was out of danger and free of the incubator. And with the simplicity of a ring following the swing of a bell, a second nurse appeared, pushing a wheel bassinet. The first nurse beamed smiles into the bassinet and swept from it a pink treasure swaddled in a simple white receiving blanket. Previously too weak to lift a spoon, Agnes now had the strength of Hercules and could have held back two teams of horses pulling in opposite directions, let alone support one small baby. His eyes are so beautiful, said the nurse who passed him into his mother's arms. The boy was beautiful in every regard, his face smoother than that of most newborns, as if he had come into the world with a sense of peace about the life ahead of him in this turbulent place. And perhaps he had arrived with unusual wisdom, too because his features were better defined than those of other babies, as though already shaped by knowledge and experience. He had a full head of hair as thick and sable brown as Joey's. His eyes, as Maria told Agnes in the middle of the night and as the nurse just confirmed, were exceptionally beautiful. Unlike most human eyes, which were of a single color with striations in a darker shade, each of Bartholomew's contained two distinct colors green like his mother's, blue like his father's, and the pattern of striations were formed by the alternation of these two dazzling pigments within each orb. Jewels they were, magnificent and clear and radiant. Bartholomew's gaze was mesmerizing, and as Agnes met his warm and constant stare, she was filled with wonder, and with a sense of mystery. My little Barty, she said softly, the affectionate form of his name springing to her lips without contemplation. You're going to have an exceptional life, I think. Yes, you will, smarty Barty. Mothers can tell. So many things happen to stop you from getting here. But you made it anyway. You're here for some fine purpose. The rain that contributed to the death of the boy's father had stopped falling during the night. The morning sky remained iron dark, plated with neural clouds like one giant thumbscrew turned down tight upon the world. But until Agnes spoke... The heavens had been for some time silent as iron and struck. As though purpose were a hammer, a hard pill of thunder crashed through the sky, preceded by a fierce flash of lightning. The baby's gaze shifted from his mother in the direction of the window, but his brow didn't furrow with fear. Don't worry about the big bad bang crash, Barty, Agnes told him. In my arms, you'll always be safe. Safe, like purpose before it, set fire to the sky and rang from that vault a catastrophic crack that not only rattled the windows, but also shook the building. Thunder in Southern California is rare, lightning yet more rare. Storms are semi-tropical here, downpours without pyrotechnics. The power of the second blast had elicited a cry of surprise and alarm from the two nurses and Maria. A quiver of superstitious dread twanged through Agnes, and she held her son closer against her breast as she repeated, Safe. On the downbeat of the word, as an orchestra to the baton of a conductor, the storm flared and boomed, boomed, brighter and far louder than before. 
The window pane reverberated like a drumskin, while the dishes on the bed tray clinked xylophonically against one another. As the window became totally opaque with reflections of the lightning, blank of the cataract-filmed eye, Maria made the sign of the cross. Gripped by the crazy notion that this weather phenomenon was a threat aimed specifically at her baby, Agnes stubbornly responded to the challenge. Safe. The most cataclysmic blast was also the final one, of nuclear brightness that seemed to turn the window pane into a molten sheet, and of apocalyptic sound that vibrated through the fillings in Agnes' teeth and would have played her bones like flutes if they had been hollowed out of marrow. The hospital lights flickered, and the air was so crisp with ozone that it seemed to crackle against the rims of her nostrils when Agnes inhaled. Then the fireworks ended, and the lights were not extinguished. No harm had come to anyone. Strangest of all was the absence of rain. Such tumult never failed to ring torrents from thunderheads, yet not a single drop spattered against the window. Instead, a remarkable stillness settled over the morning, so deep a hush that everyone exchanged glances and, with hairs raised on the back of their necks, looked up at the ceiling in expectation of some events that they couldn't define. Never did lightning vanquish a storm rather than serve as its advanced artillery, but in the wake of this furious display, the iron-dark clouds slowly began to crack like cannon-shattered battlements, revealing a blue peace beyond. Barty had not cried or exhibited the slightest sign of distress during the tempest, and now, gazing up at his mother once more, he favored her with his first smile. Chapter 20 when a glass of chilled apple juice at dawn stayed on his stomach, Junior Kane was allowed a second glass, though he was admonished to sip it slowly. He was also given three saltines. He could have eaten an entire cow on a bun, hooves and tail attached. Although weak, he was no longer in danger of spewing bile and blood like a harpooned whale. The siege had passed. The immediate consequence of killing his wife had been violent nervous amesis. But the longer-term reaction was a ravenous appetite, and the joie de vivre is so exhilarating that he had to guard against the urge to break in a song. Junior was in a mood to celebrate. Celebration, of course, would lead to incarceration and perhaps to electrocution. With Vanadium, the maniac cop, likely to be found lurking under the bed or masquerading as a nurse to catch him in an unguarded moment, Junior had to recover at a pace that his position would not find miraculous. Dr. Parkhurst expected to discharge him no sooner than the following morning. No longer pinned to the bed by intravenous feed of fluids and medications, provided with pajamas and a thin cotton robe to replace his backless gown, Junior was encouraged to test his legs and get some exercise. Although they expected him to be dizzy, he had no difficulty whatsoever with this balance, and in spite of feeling a little drained, he wasn't as weak as they thought he was. He could have toured the hospital unassisted, but he played to their expectations and used a wheeled walker. From time to time, he halted, leaning against the walker as if in need of rest. He took care occasionally to grimace, convincingly, not too theatrically, and to breathe harder than necessary. More than once, a passing nurse stopped to check on him and to advise him not to exhaust himself. Thus far, none of these women of mercy was as lovely as Victoria Bressler, the ice-serving nurse who was hot for him. Nevertheless, he kept looking and remained hopeful. Although Junior felt honor-bound to give Victoria a first shot at him, he certainly didn't owe her monogamy. Eventually, when he had shaken off suspicion as finally as he had shaken off Naomi, he would be in the mood for a dessert buffet, romantically speaking, and one he would not satisfy. 
not limited to a survey of the nursing staff on a single floor of the hospital. Junior used the elevators to roam higher and lower, checking out the skirts. Eventually, he found himself alone at the large viewing window of the neonatal care unit. Several newborns were in residence. Fixed to the foot of each of the seven bassinets was a placard on which was printed the name of the baby. Junior stood at the window for a long time, not because he was pretending to rest, and not because any of the attending nurses was a looker. He was transfixed, and for a while he didn't know why. He wasn't afflicted with parenthood envy. A baby was the last thing he would ever want, aside from cancer. Children were nasty little beasts. A child would be an encumbrance, a burden, not a blessing. Yet his curious attraction to these newborns kept him at the window and he began to believe that unconsciously he had intended to come here from the moment he had guided his walker out of his room. He had been compelled to come, drawn by some mysterious magnetism. Upon arriving at the crochet window, he had been in a buoyant mood. As he studied the quiet scene, however, he grew uneasy. Babies. Just harmless babies. Harmless though they were, the sight of them, swaddled and for the most part concealed, first troubled him, and then quickly brought him, inexplicably, irrationally, undeniably, to the trembling edge of outright fear. He had noted all seven names on the bassinets, but he read them again. He sensed in their names, or in one of their names, the explanation for his seemingly mad perception of a looming threat. Name by name, as his gaze traveled across the seven placards, such a vast hollowness opened within Junior that he needed the walker for support, as he had only pretended to need it previously. He felt as if he had become the mere shell of a man, and that the right note would shatter him as a properly piercing tone could shatter crystal. This wasn't a new sensation. He had experienced it before. In the night just past, when he awakened from an unremembered dream and saw the bright quarter dancing across Vanadium's knuckles. No. Not exactly then. Not at the sight of the coin or the detective. He had felt this way of Vanadium's mention of the name that he, Junior, had supposedly spoken in his nightmare. Bartholomew. Junior shuddered. Vanadium hadn't invented the name. It had genuine if inexplicable resonance with Junior that had nothing to do with the detective. Bartholomew. As before, the name told through him like the ominous note of the deepest bass bell in a cathedral carillion, struck on a cold midnight. Bartholomew. None of the babies in this crochet were named Bartholomew, and Junior struggled to understand what connection this place had to his unrecollected dream. The full nature of the nightmare continued to elude him, but he became convinced that good reason for his fear existed, that the dream had been more than a dream. He had a nemesis named Bartholomew, not merely in dreams, but in the real world. And this Bartholomew had something to do with babies. Drawn from a well of inspiration deeper than instinct, Junior knew that if he ever crossed paths with a man named Bartholomew, he must be prepared to deal with him as aggressively as he had dealt with Naomi. And without delay. Trembling and sweating, he turned his back to the view window. As he retreated from the crochet... He expected the oppressive pall of fear to lift, but it grew heavier. He found himself looking over his shoulder more than once. By the time he returned to his room, he felt half-crushed by anxiety. A nurse fussed over him as she helped him in the bed, concerned by his paleness and his tremors. She was attentive, efficient, compassionate, but she wasn't in the least attractive, and he wished she would leave him alone. 
As soon as he was alone, however, Junior yearned for the nurse to return. Alone, he felt vulnerable, threatened. Somewhere in the world, he had a deadly enemy, Bartholomew, who had something to do with babies, a total stranger, yet an implacable foe. If he hadn't been such a rational, stable, no-nonsense person all of his life, Junior might have thought he was losing his mind. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify, takes about 13 seconds. Leave a review on Podchaser, copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts, and copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast, or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast, or on the Good Pods app, you can leave a tip on the tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler you later. Peace. Intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you're